Well, we want to say good morning again. Good morning. Wow. Response of crowd here this morning. It's exciting, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Yeah, we look forward to this time of week. And uh, what we're going to do is uh, do the best thing that we can do and turn to our Bibles. Isn't that great? Turn to our Bibles. We have those to turn to. In Philippians chapter 4, actually starting at verse 10, going through 12. I uh, put on the outline, I think, verse 9, but we're actually going to be at, at verse 10. So it makes it look like we're doing more verses. <laughs> we'll start at 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word, and make this alive and impacting into our own hearts and lives, each one of us. Amen. One day, Lord Condleton, and, and this is a very English story, okay? So when you hear terms that sound English, English as in England, they are. Lord Condleton, a godly, he was a godly man. He overheard his Christian servants talking in the kitchen. And one of them said, oh, if I only had five pounds, I would be perfectly content. How much is five pounds today? Yeah, some thoughts, right? So anyway, he heard her statement. And decided that he'd like to see someone who was perfectly content, as she said she would be. So he went to the woman and said that he had overheard that she said in the kitchen that if she had five pounds, she would be perfectly content. So he proceeded to reach into his pocket, pulled out five-pound note, and gave it to her, and she thanked him very much. She was very grateful for that. So Condleton then went out the door of the kitchen and for a moment he just paused and he listened to the woman say something. And it was unknown to her that he was out there. And as soon as the woman thought that he had gone, she started to complain, why on earth didn't I ask for ten pounds? You knew that was coming, didn't you? Well, so it goes. Uh, content is the key word for the day. There is so much discontent in society today, but before we go to society, I have to go to myself. So much discontent in my own heart. I have to address that. Matter of fact, this passage that we just read is grossly, distinctly uncomfortable. As you look at it, it's very challenging. Very challenging. Every time you get in the Word of God, have you noticed that it is very challenging? There are things in our life we think are just fine, but if we really get it down into the perfection of what it really means and compare it to God, we are so far short of that. Um, So what we're going to be talking about is that great subject of contentment, how practical it is. Week after week, we have been dealing in Philippians with really familiar verses. I mean very familiar. It's almost like you probably have these memorized. But they are so good, aren't they? They're so much available in our own hearts that we can pull these out and and be able to live these. 
Um, I was listening to Alistair Begg last night. I wanted to hear what he had to say about Philippians 10 through 12. And it was kind of fascinating because it was the very same thing that I should be thinking and doing as the week goes on, and I think I usually do. If I spend a week on this uncomfortable, distinctly uncomfortable passage and very challenging as I read it and study it for myself and then to eventually come here Sunday morning and present this, there's no reason why you should get out of this too. (laughs) So, for those who think I spend a whole week in this bliss that I have, I'm trying to say it kind of the way that Alistair Begg did because he gets pretty good laughs sometimes and at the same time it hits. <laughs> no. I, I spend a week and you're probably thinking, boy, I bet you he just really enjoys coming in on Sunday and just beating up on us and you know, and, and try to make your lives as wretched as I possibly can. <laughs> And the, the thing is, and then run for cover, right? I've got to run after that. I want you to realize this, that these messages, these sermons, are to first be passed through my own heart, my own head, my thinking, and my experience. If they are to come with you to you with any kind of power at all. And so I first have to deal with it myself as I look at very convicting passages, passages that don't really even look convicting, as you peer into them, you go, oh, here's another area where the Lord wants to fine-tune me more to like Christ, right? And so we get that joy of doing that. So as we read the Word of God, um, may it change us. Um, the best, One of the best things that we can possibly learn is contentment. Did you hear that? One of the best things you can possibly learn in all of this world is about contentment. That's how big important it is. I've always borrowed one quote from John Piper. And of course, we know the chief end of man is to glorify God. And then John Piper has always been known with this quote, and I, and I love it. it. It'll ever be in my mind. But um, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him, when we are most content with Him. That's how we glorify God the most. This is it. You want to glorify God the most? It's not just singing and praying and reading and studying and witnessing But first of all, it's being content with the person of Christ. And all through Philippians, we have seen this being addressed. And through this section, uh, contentment is so important. It's just like having peace. Peace with God. The peace of God, right? We've seen that in the past few weeks. Having the peace of God. Having peace. But you know what? It's so elusive. And so is contentment. Contentment is so elusive. Just when we think we are content then something comes up where we're not content if we would really be honest. We live in a fallen world, right? And in a fallen world, you can never have enough money. In a fallen world, you can never have enough power. 
in a fallen world, you can never have enough prestige in a fallen world, you can't ever have a perfect relationship. In a fallen world, you can't ever be free from difficulties and still were to be content. Well, if all of those things that we just talked about, the money and the power and the prestige and on and on and on, if that's what contentment is, then it's unattainable. We'll never get it. Because if that's what we're shooting for, sorry to tell you, you're not going to make it. It's not going to work. Unattainable. It's not found in those things. Now, as we follow along in this chapter, we've seen in verse 1 that we're to stand firm. And as we stand firm, we're to be in harmony, in unity with each other. We saw that in verse 2. And then as we are in unity, we are to be rejoicing together, always rejoicing. And as we do that, then we will notice that we will not be worrying. Remember, do not worry. And we'll be praying always. And we'll be thanking God for anything. And with that, we will have the peace of God. As we looked at last week, if we think right then, to be thinking on the godly things then our lives will be right. You think right, you will live right, and then the God of peace will be with you. We have the peace of God, the God of peace. And then we come to this, and it just falls right in line, doesn't it? Paul says, I'm content. He's saying, I want you to be content. I want everybody to be content, because that's what about uh, our lives are about. Uh, You can say, yes, yes, I I know. Quit telling me that. I want contentment. I don't have it. How can I get it? How do I get there? Right? And the Word of God tells us very clearly the secret. We have a secret. As a matter of fact, that word is used in here today. Have you seen that word, secret? We have a secret. I've got a secret. (laughs) It's found right in these verses 10 through 12. But it's found throughout the whole Bible. (laughs) It's not just here, but this is where we're at today. So we can find it right here and make it very simple. Uh, What is the secret? Well, it starts with knowing the providence of God. That's what Paul is going to start off with in verse 10. How can I be content? Well, you always put your mind where? Anything that you want to do, that you know that is a good thing that glorifies God, what do you do? You start with God. So you see that He is a God of providence. And then we are, we are to learn to be satisfied. It just doesn't come automatic, does it? Paul says he learned it. And then thirdly, to not let those circumstances victimize us. All the things that we practically are in. So you start thinking about God, how sovereign He is, how providential He is. Then you start learning it by looking at the Word. And then when the living happens, the circumstances, what you do is you put those in their proper perspective and realize that God is controlling all of this. And that's where verse 10 starts. You guys ready? Alright, this is how we can be content. And it's right here. I think this is one of the best pieces of advice in all of Scripture. Because we're here today. <laughs> There's so many. I mean, you can go all over the place. But look at this. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. 
Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Okay. You can say, how do you get providence out of verse 10? It says he's rejoicing the Lord because he's received uh, a gift from them. Uh, they're concerned. Well, in the context, what's happening there, he's rejoicing because Epaphroditus has shown up and Paul happens to be where? In prison. He's in Rome, right? Okay, we're talking about contentment here. I want you to realize that he's in a place that's very uncomfortable physically, mentally, spiritually, everything. It could be very hard. Epaphroditus arrives. He's bringing this gift from the Philippians. And now Paul is glad to receive the gift, but really he's glad for the Philippians that they would be able to get the gift to him finally where they didn't have the position to do that before. And now they get that to him. And we'll go on to talk about that a little bit more. But Paul can rejoice. Why can Paul rejoice? Because he knows God. Because he knows a God of providence. He knows Him. And, and, and Paul's already said, oh, to know Him, right? To know even His sufferings, right? To know Him. Paul was content because he knew the seasons and the opportunities were all in God's hands. Now look at this in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last, now at last you have revived your concern for me. They always had a concern, but because he says, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They couldn't do it. For some reason, there wasn't that opportunity for them to do that because the opportunities were controlled by a sovereign God. It's not accident that they couldn't get that to him. And Paul couldn't get it. Wow. Really? Was God in all that? Sure. You see, we believe in a sovereign God, don't we? We believe in a providential God. Don't you wish we could really believe it, though? We can say it, and yes, we do believe it somewhat, but sometimes we forget about how sovereign He is. So there's quite a difference sometimes in the way that we feel and the way that we should know. If we're thinking on these things, we shouldn't be in those doldrums, should we? Okay, so what we have to ask now is what is providence? What is providence? It means God provides. Now, but it means more than that. That's easy, isn't it? Yes, God provides. We know that. We got our water from Him this morning. We got our food. We got our clothing. We have the air to breathe. All those things. The food, right? Shelter. God has provided those things. It, to take it up another step, we'll say God orchestrates everything to accomplish His purpose. Now, has that taken it up a little bit more? God accomplishes everything in His orchestration for His purpose. Everything that's going on. It's not just accident. Let's define it a little bit more. Let's take the, the 1689 London Confession. Okay? Let's see what it says. And basically this is the same thing that the, uh, a lot of the other confessions are saying too. I just took it from there. London Confession says this. God, the good creator of all things, no problem there, right? In His infinite power, did you catch that? Infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest 
even to the least, by His most wise and holy, here's the word, providence, to the end for the which they were created, according unto His infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, His free will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now that's one point that the confession says. Pretty good, isn't it? Let's move on. I'm going to do three points here out of this. There are many more in that section. Uh, Evidently, those writers found it very uh, important to define providence and they have scripture after scripture. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, God has a first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly so that there's not anything befalls any by chance or without His providence. It's not anything that He doesn't know about or doesn't have control over, right? We have that kind of belief in God. Yet by the same providence, He orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So He uses direct causes, and then out of that comes secondary causes that happen, but He's still in control of those. Thirdly, He says this, and then we'll move on. God, in His ordinary providence, makes use of means. Yet it is free to work without... Uh, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Well, what we're just saying is that God is such a God of providence, he not only knows things, but he's controlling all things. Until you learn that, that God orchestrates everything, I'll make a bold statement. Until we. I put we there. Till we believe that God orchestrates all, we will never be content. If we can realize that everything is controlled by God, then you're not going to understand that God is sovereign. And He's ordering everything for His purpose, for His will, after the counsel of His own will and good pleasure, as He's making all things work together for good, to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Right? Isn't that beautiful? If you don't understand that, you will be discontent. Because what you will do, you will take on the responsibility to organize things and order your own life and bang your head up against the wall constantly because you're trying to make something happen and it doesn't and you just get frustrated Because you can't control everything. And that's right. We don't control it. Yes, we control what we say and what we think and those kind of things. But guess where those are coming from? If we're thinking on the Word of God, the very power of God, the Spirit of God. So when God does something, there are two ways that He does it. One is by the way of miracle. Something that comes out of the ordinary totally unnatural something that doesn't happen. It's a supernatural act and it happens in uh, such a way that is not normal. 
you can think of God providing the way for the Israelites as they're running away from the Egyptians as He splits the Red Sea. Or Jesus, whenever He heals a man who doesn't have a limb and all of a sudden He has a limb. Or He raises the dead. Or He feeds 5,000, 15,000 or whatever. Out of a little bit of bread and fish and stretch. I mean, you think of those miracles that go on and on and on and on. He, he invades into the natural realm and does a miracle. But that's not the natural way. God usually uses natural means. There's the second way that God operates. We are not deists. Deus says God created, wound up the clock, stepped back, said have at it, everything else is going to be by accident, whatever happens, happens, it's not on me. I don't control anything. That's a deist. We are theists. (laughs) We believe absolutely in this God who is sovereign. The second way is providential. And this is the way He usually operates. What's more complicated? A miracle where God steps into the natural realm, invades it, and plugs in a miracle. Supernatural. Or when He takes 50 billion circumstances and arranges them, orchestrates them into the ultimate purpose of one thing. Now which is more fascinating to you? I think the providence of God is incredible because He's taking everything and working in. It's still miraculous because God is supernatural and He's working in a natural realm. But this, this providential dealing is sometimes it's just amazing. Sometimes He stops us in our tracks. Boom! The door closes. Then He opens the door. And you go right through it. Wow. What a kind of God that He is. Every day God is working in this providence. If we could see the whole panoramic view that God has in mind and see the Holy Spirit weaving every little detail, it's not about me, is it? (laughs) If we could just see that, the mundane things, the things that are seemingly insignificant and God is working in those events and elements all for His purpose and His glory and our good. That should overwhelm us. Okay, let's get into Genesis 45, verse 5. You have Joseph. Joseph is sold by his brothers to, uh, to be a slave and he goes to Egypt. And then we know the story that how God used all that. It was almost like nothing but bad happened to Joseph. Wound up in in jail himself for 13 years, and then he gets out and he's the right hand man of the Pharaoh. Uh, you know, I mean, he made decisions and and uh, he actually saved so many lives. Here it says in 45:5. Now he's talking to his brothers after the fact of the matter. Now after all these years. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Okay? Because you sold me here. Don't be angry. You're the ones who sold me. 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. God used this whole thing to preserve life. What an impact. You would think that He would have had it out for His brothers and had the opportunity He would have taken their lives or made them slaves, right? But there's what He says. Now go to chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph relates something here that speaks to us here today. As for you, you meant evil against me. That's his brothers. That's what you meant. You meant it for evil. But God, don't you like those two words? Meant it for good. Why? In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He kept them from starving and the famine. And then you have to think of Romans 8.28, which we just quoted earlier. God works all things together for good to those who love Him and called according to His purpose. Then you think of the book of Esther. How God worked in that providentially where you don't even see the name God in that book. Then you think of the, the book of Ruth. And we see how God worked in that. And we look in Proverbs 16.9, which... Everybody is familiar with or heard it. He said, what is it? What is it? What, the mind of a of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The Lord directs our steps. God orders the stops. He directs the steps. He orders the stops of a righteous man too, as George Mueller once said. He orders the door to be closed. He orders the door to be open. Because God knows what He's doing. Paul had a patient confidence in this beautiful providence of God. That's why he could sit in that prison and not be thinking, oh Lord, if You let me out, just think of all the great work I could be doing and ministering the Word and preaching and teaching. And He could be. But He's doing it there in prison. God has a purpose for that moment and maybe it's a time for Paul to take a break, be able to think and ponder upon God uh, you know, as time goes on. And, and God is allowing him now to write this letter to the Philippians. You know, the prison epistles. Isn't it good that Paul was under arrest and in jail so we could get these valuable letters that we're reading from the Philippians? That's looking at it in a positive way, isn't it? Well, let's go back to Philippians here. This is incredible. Well, you know, folks, man, we have a great God. Aren't you glad we have a great God? We don't have to worry, do we? Verse 10 says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now, at last, you've revived your concern for me. you got to do it. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. God has given you that opportunity. Before, He didn't give you the opportunity. God didn't make it happen before. The Philippians wanted to help Paul so many times that they didn't have the chance. It's ten years later, the season is here, and now it's time for that to happen. Paul was fully confident that God was in charge here because he orders everything for his purpose. Everything was going to be fine, and Paul sits there and says, this is just fine. This is okay. This is good. That's where contentment starts. The providence of God. You want to be content? Just think on that. You will never know a contented heart until you believe that God is sovereign and He's ordering everything for good and for His glory.
you will experience contentment. Well, that's the first one. I think that's pretty important, don't you guys think? I think it's the most important because now it turns into the flowing of learning to be satisfied. You say, God, I want to be satisfied. Well, good. You're going to have to learn from me, God says. Uh, In verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Learn to be content. Not that I speak from want. Hey, I rejoice when your gift comes. Yes, I appreciated it. I thank the Lord for you. It's really good. But I do want you to know this too. I was content. I was at peace with God even before it came. God is providential. I had all I needed before. Didn't have much. (laughs) He didn't have much. But he had all he needed. It wasn't much, but he was content with a little. Boy, this is foreign to our ideas here, isn't it? Especially in a consumer-oriented society such as the United States, the Western society. Oh, and it goes so much against the grain that what Paul is talking about here. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. So much help here Paul is giving us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You know, Paul was a tent maker, did work on the side, then he'd preach and teach. It was all day long. He would actually he didn't want to be a burden, especially to the Corinthians. As far as financial matters was concerned, he says, don't worry. He didn't want things to get blown out of proportion. People say, see, he's doing that for money. Uh, So that's the reason that he he would work and work hard and labor and and then do his ministry. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8 and 9. He says that to the uh, Corinthians as he did not want to take from them, although there were other people giving him money. He says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Now, do you think Paul was going into churches and robbing them, taking the treasure? Why does he say, I robbed? He says, well, I could have been taking money from you as being a minister to you, but no, I set that aside. I did not take, I didn't want the Corinthian money. And other people sent it to him, so he took it from them. He says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone, for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. Paul didn't want to be a burden financially to the Corinthians. And so money came in from elsewhere to kind of keep him going too. He was contented with whatever he had. That's, that's just incredible. Wow. Just unbelievable. That's what he's saying here to the Philippians. You know, you're bringing this thank you, thank you, thank you. I think the Lord, I'm, I'm glad you guys are happy, but I want to tell you, I'm still okay. But this is really good. I'm rejoicing greatly now. Content. Okay. We've been talking about being content all morning, right? Being content. What is it? What is it? Well, we've probably touched on a lot of it. But let's get a definition to that because that's the word here in this verse. I have learned to be content. Well, immediately it means to be, uh, if you take it back to the time that it was written and in that Greek word, it meant to be self-sufficient. It meant to be satisfied. It meant to be independent 
of any kind of need for help. Now, we can do no better than to look at Jeremiah Burroughs as far as outside of Scripture, but it's scriptural. And I'm, I know some of you here have read Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, his book called A Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I'm looking at a couple of you because I know you've read it. And there might be others. But uh, that little book, and I call it's a little book, but it is so packed and it will ever make an impact on your mind and your thinking on this for the rest of your lives. Would I be safe to say that? He said this. Come on, Dennis, say it. Come on, wait. Okay. Listen to this. Christian contentment is that sweet inward quiet. That gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Isn't that good? It's being sweet, inwardly quiet. It's a spirit where it just submits and delights in God's wisdom and knowing that wherever you're at, and no matter what condition, that's where God is placed. That's the mark of a mature Christian. You want to look at a mature Christian, that's where that's at. Um, It is the very duty, the very glory and the excellence of a Christian, Burroughs says. It's a duty. Folks, we are commanded to be content. We don't have a choice whether we want to be content today or not. No. And if we're not content, what are we? We're sinful. So, Burroughs says it's a duty, it's the glory, it's the excellence of a Christian. Now, this word content actually was used in the secular realm when Paul wrote this. And there was a definition of it that was kind of close to what Paul comes up with, but not close. Remember whenever I said self-sufficient and satisfied, independent of any need or, or help? Paul's saying, I've learned to be satisfied. I've learned to be sufficient in myself, but yet not in myself as myself, but as indwelt by Christ. I'm sufficient in Christ. Now, he had come to spiritual contentment. He says it right here, I believe it. I believe from there on out, Paul was spiritually content. Some of the worst circumstances it could be. Okay, going back to the Greek culture now. They had a philosophy such as the Stoics. You've heard of that philosophy probably. Stoics believe that this concept of contentment was reached when you had come to this point of total indifference you're just indifferent about things. You, nothing's going to bother you because it's mind over matter. Oh, I'm not going to let that bother me. You play like it really doesn't happen. 
the stoic contentment abolishes all feelings and all emotions, just sets it aside. Now, that's not the way that God had in mind. Uh, a writer said, the Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it peace. So, peace. Yeah. Well, it sounds close to Christianity, but it's really not. Uh, Paul is not talking about this. This word autarkis is what the Stoics used, but Paul changes the meaning for Christians. He makes it very different. He doesn't mean indifference or deeply incompassionate because Paul cares greatly. He was still. Paul was quiet. Paul was content. And through this we see we have been given a deposit by God in His Word, by His Spirit, and we realize we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. The Holy Spirit lives here. He works in us. Remember chapter 2 of Philippians? He works in us as we work it out. That means to learn contentment is to realize it's already here. God has put it here. It's part of the Holy Spirit who does that. And now we are to work that out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because we are commanded to what? To to rejoice. We are commanded to have peace. We are commanded not to worry. Isn't that what life is about though? All of those things? Well, we all have dealt with that. We still deal with it. But the Bible has a lot to say about contentment. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 and 9. We've seen how the Stoics, the Greek culture, defined contentment. Close, but no cigar, right? That's the way the world always does. Sometimes they can be so close, but yet so far. 9, 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency, do you get that? All sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. For anything that you do, it's there. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. A rather familiar passage. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. Godliness. Great gain. You'll gain that when you're content. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. He says if you have food and shelter, you know, clothes and those things, then you'll be content. That's what it starts with. If you don't have those things, I guess, then you don't have any reason to be content. Do you know of anybody that doesn't have any food or clothing? Now, we know worldwide there are in the third world that some of this does happen. We know that. Um, God still is in control of all that. 
And uh, of course, it takes Christians from all over the world and other people that, that, that give to those issues. Unfortunately, a lot of those governments don't let the money and, and the food and the things that they need get there. That's a lot of the problem right there. Verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So it's definitely not about the money, is it? Hebrews 13, verse 5. Oh, this is a famous one. This is really good. This is helpful. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Sounds like Timothy, the passage. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, and he quotes out of the Old Testament here, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What's the worst can happen? You know what? I don't think people experience this contentment like Paul is talking about. And I think even in the church, many Christians don't experience it. I have this personal idea of thinking the more you have, the more discontent that you can become. And am I saying it's bad to have things? No. Just don't let what was that? Don't let them have you, right? That's the idea, but we are in a very discontent society. But we have truth. We're called to be content. We're called to say, "I have enough." Just like Paul said, I, I'm, "I'm satisfied." Right? He learned contentment. That means he knew what truth was, and then he experienced it. God put him in those situations so he could really learn. He was one, it's one thing about being in the hothouse, in the college, in school, studying, and then when life comes around, to use it. Right? God prepares us. You see, Paul knew this and he learned it. He had been in Arabia and he learned God there as he sought out God's face and he got revelations from God. And he learned mysteries that were never revealed before. And so he understood what God was talking about and then he writes it down and gives us some of these letters here. Uh, he experienced it in the sufferings that he had. Then he, went, he learned it in Jerusalem. The things he had suffered there that the Lord told him that he would suffer. And then he learned it at Lystra and Derbe and Ephesus where he was persecuted. And now he was in prison in Rome. And he's still learning in all these circumstances how to be content. So Paul in Philippians, as he writes this letter, says, I have learned to be content through suffering circumstances. I wonder, do we learn anything from our suffering circumstances? Some of us might learn how to moan more, complain, be bitter, how to be pitied, pampered. We need to be pampered more. I wonder, do we really learn anything about our suffering circumstances? Paul's saying here, he learned. Don't we? Want, we want to learn, right? 
Contentment comes not because we have conquered our circumstances. Contentment does not become because we learn how to change our circumstances, but we learn how to live with our circumstances. That's what Paul did. And then whatever God had next in mind, that was just fine. That's great. Glory to God. Now we get to the secret. Oh, we've got to get to the secret before it's time to close here, don't we? We wouldn't want to be hanging on this. What's the secret, Paul? Of course, we've already kind of worked on that, haven't we? Twelve. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both in having abundance and suffering need. This is the secret. So if we know God has got a providence and we start learning it experientially and then it finally starts knocking us on the head and says, oh, I, I'm starting to get it. We are not to let the circumstances victimize us and then concentrate on those terrible circumstances and just keep bringing them up in our hearts and our minds. F.B. Meyer said this. It's about being in the will of God and knowing it no matter what happens. Here's what Meyer said. All is of God. God is good. Every wind blows from the quarter of His love. Every storm wafts under us nearer the harbor. Every cup, though presented by the hand of Judas, is mixed by the Father of our spirits. It is not possible for a man to thrust by his brethren into the pit unless God permit it. And therefore we may say with Joseph, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Habituate yourself. Don't you like that? Make it a habit. O Christian soul, to believe that not only what God appoints, but what He permits is in the sphere of His will. It is His will for you to be full today and to be empty tomorrow, to abound today or to be abased tomorrow. This is wonderful. He goes on to say, He has a reason, though He may not tell it to you, And because you know that the reason satisfies Him, I want you to catch this, the reason satisfies Him, you may be content. Because you know that the reason satisfies Him, you can be content. F.B. Meyer is saying just what Paul is saying. This is kind of a comment on that really, isn't it? Because if you know if He's sovereign, it's His plan, His will, this is what He wants to do, then you can say, I'm satisfied here. Now, with our own Christian walk, Paul has already said we're not to be satisfied with. He says it sounds like opposite things. We're talking about our own spiritual life. We want to proceed and know more about Christ. But as far as where we're at at the time, be content with that. Paul says a contented person is saying from his own experience, as Paul says, is a person that's satisfied with both little and much. There might be times where you have a lot in life and everything is just going just groovy 
Things are great, man. It's beautiful. And then all of a sudden, everything just seems to tumble. You've had those? Right? Up and down. Yeah. Yeah. What's God doing? We may not see the future, what He's doing, but we can be content with this. This joy uh, can be amazing. can be unshakable. Unaffected by any kind of circumstance. And He lavishes His love and His grace and kindness and mercy on us all at the same time, whatever it may be. He says, humble means. I know how to get along with humble means. I want to tell you, you will never see Paul preach the prosperity of gospel. And I challenge any health, wealth, gospel teacher to look at Paul and see what Paul preached. He never preached that kind of gospel. He says, I know what it's like to be humble. And I also know what it's like to have. He, had, he was in both kind of circumstances. That's what he's saying even right here in this verse here. Uh, basic needs. That's what he's talking I know humble. I know what humble is. It's the most basic of basic. Look in Luke 6.21. Blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be satisfied. Hunger, satisfaction. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Both. Speaking first of a Christian, you're blessed if you realize that you are hungry. You realize that you don't have the filling. You need something. You're needy. You're bankrupt. If you desire that... And you'll be satisfied. You may be weeping, repenting. There's a time of laughing. Humble means prosperity. Paul had had that. I'm sure before he became a Christian, he had probably had a lot of prosperity. He went to one of the finest schools, had one of the finest teachers, as uh, we think of his education. And we saw what Paul was like before that, but I'm sure even at times, even as a Christian, he had things in, in what he would consider to be abundant. It's different to other people. But um, con- contentment means that whatever we do not have, we don't need. <laughs> I don't need that. Contentment doesn't depend on what you have or where you are. D- does that make sense? It doesn't depend on those things. It depends primarily on who you are. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And who you're in. You are in Christ. Contentment depends on that. It's not an economic quality. The world is telling us that and we think that we are failures. Look, the, the poverty line is something like, was it 30,000, 40,000 now or something like that? Man, I've been under the poverty line deeply for many, many years. You know, where do they come up with these figures? You know, and now they set these standards. I, I have no idea. You know, I don't know. Uh, I never considered myself in poverty. Not so at all. In fact, when we start thinking about, if you want to compare it to the rest of the world, we are some of the richest people ever to live in the history of mankind. My goodness, how good God has been. John D. Rockefeller said, you remember him, the great multimillionaire? Uh, he was asked, how much money would be enough for you? He thought for a moment, he said, ah, just a little more than one has. Just a little bit more. The multimillionaire, and it wasn't enough? 
It would never be enough. You see, he didn't attain it. He didn't have that spiritual attainment. That's what he failed at. Even though it looked like everything that he was something. Uh, Paul talks about suffering, suffering need. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both having abundance and suffering need. I'm not telling you to go out and, hey, start getting poor and selling everything you have and, and uh, try to be as poor as you can. That way you'll look spiritual or whatever it is. People, you know, people sometimes think if you don't, if, 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 if you don't have something, that means you're more spiritual. You see what I mean? You're more spiritual if if you try to keep from having something that really God has, you know, He's made it possible for you to have. You can do that. It's okay. Those outward things. Um, that's asceticism. And Colossians has a lot to say about asceticism. It's legalism. It's making things to make you look more spiritual because you keep yourself from doing something or, or what have you. But I am saying that suffering need is at the point of where Paul was at. He did suffer. We could look at all the text and we don't have time. I've got a lot of them probably listed there. Suffering, Second Corinthians 11, Acts, all the Acts passages, places where he was chased out of town, places where he was put into prison. He wasn't practicing asceticism. Don't try to be a certain way. It's going to happen. All those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And those circumstances are going to come. Don't look for them. Be rejoicing wherever you're at. And if you happen to be at a great spot in life where you're very comfortable, that's okay. That's, that can be good. You know, Give God the glory. Realize that you have the peace of God. And it's always there. Paul says, I'm content. Why, Paul? Well, I've learned the secret. What secret? He just poured it out right here, didn't he? He learned the secret. It's not too hard to find the secret. Matter of fact, when you look in Philippians, going back to chapter 1, verse 21, remember this? For to me, to live is Christ. That's a secret there, isn't it? Of contentment. That is contentment there. He's been talking about it the whole time. That means He's the sum total of my life. Christ is my life. Jesus Christ is the foundation of my life. Jesus Christ is the goal of my life. He is everything. Jesus Christ is life, right? In chapter 2, what's he saying? In humility, we have the mind of Christ. The humility chapter. Remember that one? I have, but I'm to have the mind of Christ. In chapter 3, what's he been saying there? That I might know Christ and might fellowship with his sufferings. That's content that I might be conformed to Him. I'm going to close with this. He's the source. He's the supply of contentment. I'm going to close here with again another quote from Jeremiah Burroughs from that little bitty book. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Hang on to it. It's got to, do, got to think about, a little bit about this. This is a Puritan. It's Puritan writing, but it's very understandable. Think about it. It can help as we look at our text here. 
Contentment is realizing that God has already provided everything we need for our greatest happiness. It's all there! Exclamation point. Where? Christ! Exclamation point. Yet many of God's children have not learned this secret of contentment. They haven't learned what Jesus said. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. He came alongside a woman at a well who was wrecked. Her soul was thirsty. And he said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water of life freely that I shall give shall never thirst. The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Paraphrase. And these material things that we surround ourselves with is no lasting satisfaction. Only in that which God provides, and that being Christ, is where we find satisfaction and contentment. And we leave this message, this text, with this question. Does this message of contentment impact us right now? Let's pray.